Power fans and welcome back. Welcome to the Chronicles of Power, a weekly show recap of the latest episode in the Powerverse. My name is Kimi and I'll be your host on this ride as we break down all things power. We are brought to you by Private Listed, your source for all things music, sports, culture, and entertainment. Hit us up on IG at PVTLSTD, YouTube, Twitter. And again, if you want to email us or you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email me at pvtlstd at gmail.com. If you want to hit me up privately um, on Instagram, my name is Kimi Cakes, K-E-E-M-I-E-C-A-K-E-S. That is plural. And today we are going to be talking about Raising Canaan, episode 207, titled No Love Lost, director Joy T. Lane, writer Joseph Sawyer, and music by Ali Shaheed Muhammad. Let's get into some news first, because because uh, this week, depending on when you watch the premiere of this episode, you should have saw that the Stars Network has changed to Lionsgate Plus. According to PRN Newswire, on September 28th, the Stars announced that its premium international streaming service, Stars Play, will rebrand as Lionsgate Plus in 35 countries, coincided with a new brand look and graphics package, which will roll out globally on September 29th. So by the time you watched this episode of Raising Canaan, which aired on October 2nd as of midnight, uh, these changes will impact stars 30 excuse me stars a 63 country imprint and exclude the US and Canada so in other words if you live in the UK you probably saw that your opening credits to your episode did not say stars anymore it said Lionsgate plus however within the US and Canada it looks the same it still says stars separately Lionsgate filed a current report on form 8k. I thought this form was called K-8, but here they have it listed as 8K with the SEC. So that's the Securities and Exchange Commission updating shareholders on its progress towards separating stars and its Lionsgate studio business. So here is what has me thinking. Because Lionsgate is separating their content from stars, remember last week, or maybe it was the week before in a prior podcast, we announced that 50 did not re-sign with stars. And I wonder, think, 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 if he is possibly shopping his content to Lionsgate instead of stars. So let's keep a lookout for that and see what happens with 50 and where he decides to take his production company. Now, in terms of spoiler news, it seems like Famous is gonna make it to season three. I listened to the Crew Has It podcast and he was on there interviewing with Michael Rainey Jr. and Gianni Paolo who play Tariq and Brayden on the Ghost series within the Powerverse. And he says that they have already started filming for Raising Kanan, excuse me, for Raising Kanan season three. So that means that he's there and he didn't die this season. So that's one prediction that I got wrong. But um, 
So I guess we'll, we'll be looking forward to seeing him. And obviously we know Jukebox and Kanan make it to season three. And I also saw that Haley Kilgore was on the crew hasn't. And she said that they are filming as well. And obviously she's going to be there. In other news within the Powerverse, Mike Flynn, who wrote the episode... Uh, 206 that was the last episode he has a new show that aired on cbs called east new york it premiered on october 2nd he's listed as co-creator executive producer and co-showrunner so try to check that show out it's called east new york now he's not from new york he's not from brooklyn but i believe he's from atlanta but he has written this show and it's all about community policing and there's a black female lead and that's not normal for cbs so definitely check it out and in asshole news kanye west is steady being an asshole and he has decided to make t-shirts that say white lives matter so if you guys continue to excuse his behavior i'm just gonna think you're just as dangerous as he is but anyway let's get into what i liked about the episode so Episode 207, I got a lot of answers to the things that I was wondering about. So, for instance, last week I asked, are these kids still in school? And Kanan has a talk with Symphony about his grades, letting us know that he is still there. We just we just aren't seeing it. It's happening off camera when he's not doing drug runs or getting robbed. So he is in school or maybe he was lying to Symphony. But as of right now, we'll take his word for it that he is in school. His grades are what they are. And in bigger news... I was right. I predicted that Scrap was not a snitch. So Scrap's character was vindicated because he was not the snitch. Rather, it was his mother who was working as a CI uh, and using her card games as a ploy to get all of the information in the neighborhood. And they even use the term 411. So we start off the episode with older Caden's narration. And we know that his narration in the beginning of the episode is going to tell us what the themes in the episode is going to be right or what they are going to be and his narration is explaining the ripple effect of decisions that have long-standing consequences so when you're casting an object into water you see how far it goes and sometimes the stone that you cast or the object that you cast can cause splashes and wetness that you aren't able to immediately recognize at first sight and its reach may be further than the human eye can detect and from there we see Jukebox at the cemetery visiting her deceased girlfriend, Nicole's gravesite. And it's a full circle moment of Kanan's theoretical rock throw of literally getting involved in his mother's drug business. And on his first outing makes tainted rocks, right? Makes tainted rocks for rock or drugs that subsequently kills addicts in the hood. But we, we don't focus on them, right? But we do focus on the death of Juke's beloved Nicole, after his narration, we hear a conversation between Juke and Nicole's father, who is more civil to Laverne, who is Jukebox, than her than Nicole's mother. He lets Juke know that, you know, the mother isn't there so she can let her guard down a little bit. But he also tells her that Nicole would have hated the plot or hated her cemetery plot or hated the cemetery in general because of her struggles with her allergies. And if you guys hear how congested I am, it is definitely allergies kicking my tail again. <coughs> the bombshell here, though, excuse me, the bombshell here is that the husband and the wife, so Nicole's mom and dad, they're getting a divorce, which was eminent, right? Because they see the world differently. And the father is explaining to Jukebox that 
trying to make her feel comfortable and letting him know that he doesn't necessarily see the world how the mother sees the world and that he is grateful for Jukebox and what she brought to his daughter throughout the short time that she was alive. And he even says to her, and this is the best part of the scene, he says, I'm glad she knew what it felt like to be in love and I'm glad that you were in her life. She's about to cut him off and say, Mr. Bingham, I think there's something you need to know. But he cuts her off. He doesn't even let her finish. He says, there's nothing more that I need to know. And my question here is, what was Jukebox about to tell him? There's no way she was about to tell him she knew where the drugs came from that killed this girl. Because she doesn't rub me as someone who will fold under pressure or feel the need to snitch or feel the need to tell on what where the drugs came from, how they got there, who's involved. I, I wonder what she was going to tell him, but I think she probably was going to tell him about the drugs, or at least that's what my gut tells me. However, he tells her she doesn't. he doesn't need to know anything else. He's just happy that she was there and that he's fine with her and that's enough for him. But he does ask her about the tape. And remember, that's the tape that Marvin destroyed throughout the fight with him and Jukebox. And she lies and says she doesn't know what happened to it. After this scene, we we get to see, for all you little nasties out there, we come back to our softcore porn that power has been stuffing down our throats for a whole bunch of seasons. Do y'all remember Skinamax where they used to show all of those sex scenes for no reason that had nothing to do with the plot? They would just randomly thrown into episodes or whatever show that they were premiering or airing at that time so we see uncle lulu and zisa they are getting it in in the background you hear dj mo craze that's the one who met with crown and uncle lou a few episodes back so dj mo craze he introduces ralph tresvant sensitivity which came out in 1990 and remember this show was set in 1991 this is, isn't this just like the radio to stay playing old shit, even though they're not really breaking new artists and Lou and Zisa are still doing the do and Lou interrupts and says, I don't understand why he's not playing the song and Zisa can't even believe that he can even hear the radio at this point. She's like, you're supposed to be paying attention to me, but that's interrupted because a bunch of fake Jamaicans walk into the studio and let me just pause here with the scene recap and get into my pet peeve let me take a breath i absolutely despise fake jamaican accents now don't get me wrong these accents weren't the worst that i've heard and there were some parts within the lingo that did kind of sound authentic, but it sounded a little weird, whereas they it still sounded Americanized, and then it sounded like a little bit of Patois. But ever since Cool Runnings, Mighty Quinn, or How Stella Got Her Groove Back, where they had Tay Diggs doing that horrible accent and that cheesy-ass smile, I... I hate when they cast American actors to do Jamaican accents or if they cast other people from the Caribbean to try to do Jamaican accents and it just falls flat. 
And I know you may think that people can't tell and that all Caribbean cultures sound the same. And even in, even remember the Haitians back in power when ghosts, that the ones that ghosts killed, even they sounded terrible. And I don't even want to start on the Haitians that they casted in Bad Boys and how they sounded. We all do not sound the same. The same way how y'all can get Blanca Rodriguez to talk like she got lockjaw and talk through her teeth like that. Like y'all can find people or find Jamaican actors. I promise you there are people from Jamaica who know how to act. As a matter of fact, the guy who plays Scrap, he's Jamaican. Y'all could have asked him for some actor friends. It's just as simple as that. There are tons of Jamaican actors. There's no reason why we have to have fake accents anymore. Or even if it's gonna, it's not going to be someone from Jamaica, find someone who can talk Patois properly. Like, it's just that simple. Please do your research and hire someone who can speak Patois with the right inflections in their voice and the right tone. Now, back to our regular scheduled podcasts. Before Zisa and Lou can finish doing the do or even arguing about finishing the do, they are interrupted by a gang of fake Jamaicans who have beef with Crown. Here is more of the ripple effect, right? When we mentioned at the top of the episode, we talk about how ripple, how the ripple effect, you're not able to gather all of the evidence of how far your stone that you cast can go. Or what repercussions, what consequences consequences come with your stone throw, right? And here is one for Lou. Lou doesn't initially think that he's going to have blowback with killing Crown. I'm not even sure if he considered the police have, uh, getting involved or looking for a Crown, right? So Lou had no clue about crown owing jamaicans or owing someone fifty thousand dollars he thought that having crown out of his hair would solidify his position at the label making him the head honcho and possibly within the music industry there's no way that luke could have known that killing crown would mean that he would have to take on a fifty thousand dollar debt to linton manley i'm pretty sure he didn't even know who linton manley was before the before even killing crown i was about to call him clown but Linton Manley, that name is very Jamaican, may I say, (laughs) just the word Linton, anything, Winston, Linton, Barrington, any ton at the end, there is definitely a Jamaican somewhere or a West Indian. But after they are approached by the two guys who come in talking about Crown, Zisa, and I just have to wonder, what the hell is on this girl's mind? After they... He, she sees that he's distracted that they're not playing her record on the radio. They try to get back into the groove of doing the do. They get bombarded by two people who are requesting or demanding that Crown's debt be repaid. Lou is kind of brushing it off saying that Crown's debt has nothing to do with me. And they are adamant that, yes, it does. She comes over and says, we need to finish up. And he just gives her the side eye and thank goodness she gets lost. Like, girl, what are you thinking about? He just got threatened. He just killed Crown. Y'all not getting any burn on the radio. Get your mind right. (coughs) Excuse me, guys. 
But we leave that scene and Zisa's airheadedness and we finally see Kanan who is distracted and frustrated while playing video games. So we see him go back to his Jansport backpack and pulls out the pistol that his girlfriend's mom, Palomar, gives him in the last episode. So when he had to go run down off Freddy for robbing him and Famous, he also picks out the letter that his father, Detective Howard, gave him, but he puts it back in without reading it. And I wonder what's in that letter. I want, is that just the paternity test or is it something else that he's trying to explain to him? Is it about DEFCON? Is it about his relationship with Rock and how him and Rock developed a relationship, how they even met? But the letter was supposed to answer any questions that he may have about Howard. So... I'm guessing that this letter will come back into play later on. Uh, maybe Howard is not going to be there or able to answer any questions for him. And then that's when he'll finally read it. But we move on from that scene and then we meet up with my favorite, Uncle Marvin. And Uncle Marvin sets up a meet between him and Marco Boselli. And Marco is the son of Sal Baselli. And remember that this is who Rock has called a truce with and who she is partnering with to start expanding her business to New Jersey. But Marvin explains to Marco that he has a rat problem. And he found out that Marco lives in Westchester, which is near Tony. And Tony was the woman who was supposed to dime Marvin out, which is why he ends up ends up in anger management classes but tony skips town starts a whole new life has a whole new identity in terms of her class in society so she is recently engaged she has put all of uh, the club business behind her and marvin behind her and now she's engaged and living a nice white happy life right but marvin knows that he can't make an appearance out in Westchester and do the hit himself because he's he'll be too noticeable. And as we saw when he was just sitting down, parked in his car, eating chips or a sandwich, that people notice him. So he partners with Baselli in order to make an alliance and for them to come to an agreement about killing Tony, who is his rat problem. Baselli doesn't initially agree flat out. He just asks him, what is he going to pay? Marvin tells him he's going to pay $5,000 and he'll let him know if he's interested in doing it or not. But one thing that I do want to call out is that Marco is set on his father not finding out. So whatever business he has with Marvin, it has to stay between them and he can't. it can't get back to his dad. And that gives me bad vibes already. If you're your own man and you are grown and you're in this life, why do you think that anyone is going to report this back to your dad? And once he said that, that definitely gave me bad vibes because I know now it's definitely going to get back to his vibes. But we still continue to move throughout the episode and we find <laughs> Mr. Cartier Fareed and his cultural lessons for rock are back in session. Before, it was him mansplaining art and moving out of town to a less concentrated market and stopping insurrections. And this week, it's about acquired, the acquired taste of caviar at the Russian Tea Room, a New York institution that has been around since 1927. Cartier is, uh, 
He's having dinner with Rock and she's sitting there just soaking in whatever it is that he's saying, trying to find a way how she's going to use this against him. And boom, here it comes. Tremont walks into the restaurant. He introduces himself to Rock's. They exchange pleasantries and Cartier seems really annoyed with Tremont. He's annoyed that he's walking into the Russian tea room. He also finds out that Cartier has a room at the Pierre and he's annoyed that, I, I don't know, is he annoyed that he has money? Is he annoyed that he's going to the same places that he is? Is it just that he feels that because he's the top dog that the people who work under him or work for him, they shouldn't be in the same places as him? That, that kind of seems a little weird. And then he says to him, I think I'm paying you too much. Now, if he's running your business, I and you have to pay him and he's doing good work for you. Why do you have a problem that he's, he's going to the same haunts as you? So what he's at the Russian tea room. So what that he's staying at the Pierre. He, he wants to have a nice lavish life just like you, but you know, Cartier seems to be a hater and he, he doesn't want him there. And, um, it rubs Tremont the wrong way when Cartier says, I think I'm paying you too much. And he says he's his own man and he and he's not dependent on Cartier. And Roch is watching the chicken stew and taking in all of their words and waiting to pounce and use this information that she's learning. The same way how she did it with Unique talking to Uncle Lulu. Or how she listens to whatever any other character tells her. She keeps, she holds on to it and then she uses it later for her benefit. So we'll see how she's going to use all of this information later. But she, know that she knows that she's going to use this in some shape or form. And she even starts out with putting a battery in Cartier's back by saying, <laughs> wasn't you the one that says that insubordination leads to insurrection? And... She, she she's trying to ask him was that all just talk or are you going to check your man because she sees that his man was annoyed by his comments of asking what he's doing here and then saying that he's 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 his own man and cartier obviously was annoyed once he saw him in the restaurant so she knows that she's gonna she's gonna get a little riff going between them so we leave the restaurant and we find canaan and where he was going after he looked stressed out going through his backpack and finds the gun and he finds his way to Palomar's house or Corinne's house and he goes there to return the gun as she opens up the door Anita Baker is caught in the rapture is playing and she has on a black silk robe and you can only guess where this scene is going and all I could think to myself was please don't do this stars please like yuck I don't want to see a grown woman simulated sex with what's supposed to be a teenage boy now granted i know that all of these actors are adults but i still i don't want to see it it's like in house of dragon i don't want to see a uncle and niece simulate sex and i definitely don't want to see him do it with a teenage girl now granted the younger actress who plays rainera is an adult i believe she's in her 20s but i don't want to see that like it's still gross right i know it's not real but it's it's gross. 
Okay. But anyway, I knew the daughter wasn't home just by what the mother had on the music playing in the background, the way how Kanan walks in. I was just hoping that they would only tease what was going to happen and that they would just insinuate it. And it doesn't really, it doesn't actually show Palomar and Kanan becoming intimate. <sighs> he does try to stop it though. I, I will say that he does say, hey, Corinna's my girlfriend. Why are you kissing me? Like he kind of like backs off and looks disgusted. But she reassures him that she's a woman and diggy ass Kanan goes in for the gusto. And of course, he sleeps with this woman. Yuck. But that scene gets cut. And you hear, do not have sexual relations with a woman and her daughter. Okay, Kanan. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Oh, just while she's living. Okay. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and and defile yourself with her. That's all from Leviticus 18. It gives us a whole list of rules for our bedroom activities. And we find Jukebox. She's at Bible study with her mother, where the pastor is talking about alternative lifestyles being a hellacious sin. And there's nothing alternative about that. I wonder if these verses are influencing her decisions to try dating boys, because we see in a later scene that she agrees to go to the movies with the boy who has been flattering with her, the same one who was at church when she was singing. But in a later scene, they do go to the movies. And were y'all able to figure out what movie they were talking about? What movie they saw at the movie theaters? If you guessed it was The Hand that rock- the hand Who Rocks the Cradle, you were right. I think they were definitely talking about that movie. Especially when she says they hid the little girl's underwear in his toolbox. So if you remember The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, there was a deranged babysitter who was breastfeeding a woman's child. And... That, that's not normal now. Now, back in the day, hundreds and, well, a couple years ago, we still had wet nurses where other women would feed uh, babies that did not belong to them because if you were in high society, it was frowned upon for you to feed your own kid. So, but that's what happened in that movie and it was kind of weird and it sh- took everyone for a shock back in the 90s. Um, but in that same scene, after they were talking about the hand who rocks the cradle, they even kiss and she agrees to go back out with him again. But I have a question here and you guys could tell me if you think that I'm guessing wrong, but I may have mentioned this in another episode where I say, I think uncle Marvin in his fight with jukebox, he kind of insinuated that jukebox's mother was gay too. And they haven't really mentioned it again this season because even when he met up with her, he doesn't say it and he definitely doesn't mention it again to Jukebox throughout this season or even after their fight. But you don't really see them interact after their fight and we've only seen them interact maybe two or three times this season and it's pretty much Jukebox just doing that same look she does and she shrugs her shoulders and rolls her eyes and cocks her head to the side and pretty much ignores him or just says gives him one one word answers but i say that to to get to this point 
I think her mother may be heavy in the church because of her own sexual desires that she's trying to stamp out too, right? And maybe that's one of the reasons why she's bringing jukebox into the church, into the church so heavy with her, because she is guessing that her daughter may have the same sexual proclivity. Uh, but I guess maybe we'll find out more about that later. And I just, I want to call back to Marvin meeting up with Kenya because he doesn't accuse her of not being attracted to him, of not wanting to be with him. He just says that she picks up and leaves and she just wants to take the glory for raising jukebox but nothing about why she left and nothing definitely about her sexuality. So we'll see why they're, why they're so heavy into the church. And you do see when the boy asks her out, when the boy asks Juke Boy out, Juke Boy, when the boy asks Jukebox out on the date, you can see her mother kind of pushing her on and trying to encourage her to say yes. But speaking of Marvin, He's in the projects and asking why are the feeds out in the hallway? Why are they loitering and why are they not buying and leaving like regular business? He enters the apartment and who does he find there stealing money? We find Uncle Lulu stealing cash that one or all of them will have to account for to rock, right? So the people that are there who are supposed to be doing the intake, they have to be held accountable. Marvin came in and saw it happen and Lou committed it. So all of these people are going to have to answer why this money is missing because they know that Rock is serious about her cash and that she counts every single dime. And don't forget that Rock is looking to buy a house. So this cash is going to come in. It's, it's necessary. She's going to need it. So she's going to want to know why some of it is missing. But he asks Lou how much he's taking and Lulu doesn't give him a definite answer besides, I got it all in my head, all right? He pulls out the cash and they know that the books are going to be messed up. So pulling out cash is going to mess up the books and they are there's going to be hell to pay for that because when Rock's, Rock finds this out, I, I hope that she wouldn't kill her brother, but right now he is he's doing a little bit too much and he is another example of throwing rocks and looking for where it's going to casting a rock and looking for where it lands and not necessarily knowing the repercussions of what the rock throw is going to do. So we leave that scene and we find detective Howard freshly pressed and dressed at the station house. And he spots guess who scraps mom pleading with detective Peng, right? Howard bumps into Garcia who lets Howard know that she doesn't believe her son committed suicide. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and she's leaning on Peg, right? Because she knows that her son wouldn't have committed suicide. She knows what information she gave Peg, and she knows that they need to investigate what happened to her son because she believes, obviously, that it wasn't a suicide, but yet it was a homicide. In this scene, we find out that she was paying CI and that she would give him information through running her card games. You see, when you're too fast in people business, he just saw something. He didn't ask for any clarification. He didn't do any investigation, any investigation. He didn't even figure out what was happening. He just saw someone in the station house and ran back and told Rock. But Howard is realizing his assistant Rock is in trying to protect his son was wrong 
more ripple effects, right? This is the whole theme of the episode, the ripple effects of our decisions. So their most loyal soldier is dead now because of the stupid mistakes of Detective Howard. Because of his hasty decisions that came from faulty information that wasn't properly vetted by none of the parties involved. Granted, Marvin did try to ask questions and I did say within that episode that uh, Scrap picked the wrong time to lie. The absolute wrong time to lie. He sh- uh, he lied because he was frustrated, right? He lied because he, he was annoyed. He lied because he didn't want to tell them all his moves because he wanted to have an upper hand in, in the situation. But... This was the wrong time to lie. And also, he probably just didn't want to tell him that he got picked up for being at the card game that Rock just told him not to be at. Now, granted, he wasn't snitching, but someone kind of was. It was his mom, and he probably didn't want to involve his mother in any of the mess anyway. But we move back on to my favorite, Miss Bettina Miller, who plays Rock. She is loitering in the hotel that Cartier and Tremont were supposed to meet at. And I believe it's called the Pierre. And she approaches Tremont with a business proposition, right? She offers him more work for less cash and less headaches and a better product at a better price. And as we see, we see that light skin yellow face is bruised and abused, right? And I'm guessing Mr. Cartier Fareed did his signature backhand move again, or maybe he even used a closed fist on Mr. Tremont, who he found to be so insubordinate and so disrespectful just for showing up at the Russian tea room or setting up a meet at the Pierre or just daring to speak to him when he's out of uniform. <laughs> but Rock doesn't miss doesn't mince words here. She knows there's an opportunity to build out her team, especially now that she wants to have an expansion and migrate her business to the DMV area. And having a distro who knows the lay of the land will help set up this process. It'll be both seamless and the execution will be effortless because this is someone who has worked under Cartier for Reed. He knows the lay of the land and... It'll be easy to get him on her side because she knows that there's a rift brewing between him and Cartier already. He tells her that it is risky to approach someone who she just met and she doesn't really know where their loyalties lie. For instance, she already made a mistake with doing this, right? With Deacon Warrell and Unique. She thought that Warrell will just automatically be loyal to her because Unique wasn't out and he had and he was getting locked up and she had the upper hand because they were able to take over most of the territory in Queens or the territories that Unique once held, she now holds. And she thought just because Unique wasn't outside that she could build allies with Warrell and subsequently take Unique out of the game. But we all see how that worked out for her. But he tells her just that. I can't trust you. You just met me. Why the hell would you want to work with me? And how do you know I'm not going to tell Cartier anything that you just approached me with? But she is confident in her ability to spot turmoil. And she says, I know you. And I know that you don't really mess with Cartier anymore. And I'm sure you're going to take me up on my offer because she knows that he wants to be his own man and he wants to move his own weight and she's going to give him a better price for doing so. And here we go. 
to another New York food institution. If you're ever in New York, definitely try it. Girardi's, best pizza in town, or so they say. I prefer the spots in the hood, but that's another conversation. But we meet back up with Kanan, who who I guess just finished with Palomar. Did she? Uh, I don't know. But I guess he left Palomar. And now he's with Symphony. So Kanan is talking about setting goals for himself and how he's doing in school. And Symphony is interested in what his grades are like and how, how is everything progressing. And we know that Kanan was advanced. And that's how we know Symphony because he eventually took AP courses with Symphony at City College. So, but Symphony tells him just because you're trying to score doesn't mean they are goals and they laugh and they talk. But the most important part to this scene is that Symphony tells Kanan that he is moving to Charlotte, North Carolina for a transport planner position, meaning that he's probably going to be planning bus schedules for uh, buses that go in and out of town. So this makes me think that Symphony may stay alive. I know I predicted that he would die uh from the first episode of this podcast and from the first episode of the season i thought that he was gonna die but because he has a transport planner position this makes me think that this is their way for getting drugs in and out of new york with no problem because he is gonna be running and setting up the schedules for the buses leaving the dmv and south area Ding, ding, ding. But Kanan says, so you're leaving Southside. And he admits he is telling Kanan that so that he can go back and relay the news to his mother, even though they aren't dating anymore. And here comes Blanca Burke pulling over Symphony and asking about Kanan and Rock and why he was pulled over at a checkpoint in that area a few months back when a cop was shot. I want to give Symphony props here because he did hold his own and he didn't give any information. He tells her what she's doing is unconstitutional. She's not pulling him over for anything. And he does want to know, why are you so interested in Kanan and Rock? And why are you so interested in Kanan? She even asked him about his father. Now, how the hell is Symphony going to know about Kanan's father? She's so weird. Like, how the fuck are you just going to pull somebody over in the, in the middle of the day? You don't have any reason for the traffic stop, but you just want to question them? Like, no. You, you can't do that. But he does hold his own and says, listen, I'm not answering any of your questions. Just give me back my fucking ID. Let me get out of here. So let's do some quick hits so, because there are some scenes that we don't really have to dive into too much. So here's some quick hits. Rock is still buying her house and she needs to show proof of income. The key point to this scene is that she said, she says, I own a record label and I'm able to get you the pay stubs, right? Because the lady tells her this, does this whole song and dance about, oh, you have to upkeep the law. They want to make sure you have enough money to do so, which is all white people bullshit. She's lying here. She just, she just wants to make sure she wants uh, to track the funds where she wants a paper trail. Where's the money coming from? Another quick hit. Jukebox goes to a, v, uh, a video editing store where she has the VHS, VHS tape restored. And I wanted that polo coat that Jukebox had on so bad. And my friend Jamila, she had it. So, But that coat that Jukebox had on, that's from the 90s. It's not from 91, but it is from the 90s. Another quick hit. 
unique with that MCM jacket and the cement threes. Oh boy, that outfit. Oh my God, that shit was fly. And uh, I would love that jacket. The cement threes, I never got them. And, I, you know, I, I was looking for them last week. And even my husband, he was looking for them, but we couldn't find them. They're, they are, they're not out right now. They weren't re-released. And hopefully we can find them. But the they put that outfit together dope. And if you follow me on Instagram, you saw that I posted the inspiration for that outfit. That outfit was originally made by Dapper Dan out in Harlem. And he made it for Alpo Martinez. Uh, and we could get into who that was at a later date but he did that was one of the big drug dealers from back in the day and he made that outfit for him and to see unique in it that it it brought everything full circle for me but they do such a good job with the outfits on this show <clears throat> but again we do buck up on unique who is meeting up with the deacon and they are in Jersey and you can see that Unique likes Jersey. It's a, He's having an easy go of it because it's simple work. He's he's planning ahead. He knows that his time with Rock is limited and he knows that they want to do other things because Rock is only biding her time with him. She knows that the union that she has with Unique is for a short time and she's just trying to figure out to do She's just trying to figure out what to do with Unique at this point. And she knows that she has to keep him around because of the alliance that she's forming with Sal in order to expand her business to New Jersey and, and uh, hopefully further down the eastern seaboard. We see that Marco pulls up on Unique and Worrell and Unique pays him and, you know, they pay their tax for working out in Jersey and... This is where Marco acts about Marvin. And what I'll say about Unique's character is even if he doesn't like you, he is honest. And what he is, what he does do here is he says that he says, fuck Marvin, number one. But Marvin is going to say whatever Marvin says he's going to do, he's definitely going to do it. So whatever money he told you that he was going to give you, he's definitely going to do it. And Marco was just trying to get a feel for Marvin and making sure that he's good on his word and unique vouches for Marvin. This <laughs> now remember one of the things that Marco said in his scene with Marvin is that it can't get back to his dad. Him telling unique about this is definitely going to get back to the dad and it is going to be so messy once they find out obviously what happens later on in the episode but unique has a funny line here and it was probably the best line of the scene he says them two working together meaning barco and marvin hide the women and the children lord boys he right about that but another quick hit blanca <laughs> i keep calling her blanca but burke is still investigating howard she finds out that he had a 17 year old ci ding 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 Here's what I was looking for. So remember, a few episodes ago, I said, what is the reason why Rock is so committed to protecting DEFCON's legacy, right? And I'm guessing here, but I think we have some verification that the reason why she is protecting DEFCON's legacy is because she's the one who dimed him out. So a 17-year-old CI is who Howard had 
when she so she's going through the file she finds out he has a 17 year old ci now in this scene they say that she said that the ci was 17 years old but maybe her work as a ci started out as a 16 year old and that's how she started in the drug business she started with defcon and then she eventually became a ci and then eventually they had some relations of some sort but the cop in that scene is definitely going to tell what he saw between Burke and the other cop because the other cop is giving her this information about him having the CI, him being undercover, and but he's doing it in order for her to possibly get his nephew off the hook for a shoplifting charge. So we'll see how that works out because we see that Burke is doing too much. This is just like sex, right? When you're doing things... I know you want to catch somebody, but you can't do it underhanded because then it's all going to blow back in your face. And that's how Saks got caught up in the first power, right? So another quick hit. Let's see. Rock meets up with the Colombians and we see Juliana not looking so homely. So she's not looking like she's behind the counter at the bodega anymore. And she's sitting there drinking her wine and Rock is meeting up with her cousin who is a part of the Colombian crew. And they discuss her feeling threatened by Unique popping up at her store and why Rock is choosing to work with him, even though he stole from her and he keeps threatening Juliana. However, Rock, she explains to them that he is a necessary evil for the Jersey expansion. And she also explains that she has a way to move to DC and Maryland. Now, this does pique the interest of Juliana's cousin because he is, he does want his business to grow or he wants Rock's business to grow because that helps him, right? Like he's able to move more product and so will she be able to move more product. But the best piece of advice that Rock gives here is that you can't be pulling the trigger on emotion. And just remember those words because she's going to learn that she has to take her own advice later on in the episode because she did pull the trigger on emotion without properly vetting information, right? So just remember, she promises to handle Unique in due time, but we also see in this scene that Tremont is spying on them by way of one of his little cronies. Now, Lou gets jumped by the Jamaicans to send him a message. I do have a question here. Why the hell does Lou need to get jumped? Because why the hell did he pull the money out of the stash house or pull the money from uh, the projects if he wasn't going to pay off the Jamaicans? Is he using the money for something else? And why didn't he just give it to them? Or maybe he was going to give it to them, but he got jumped before he could. Or, but I, I still want to know what he's going to do with the money that he stole. Because when he sold it, I just thought he was going to pay off the debt and call it a day. Or maybe it wasn't enough. But even if it wasn't enough, he could have just gave half or gave a quarter or gave a third to hold them over so that they don't have to come and whip his ass. But they still did. And he didn't give them any money. Moving on. I hope it's not, this is not one of those things where they cut the scenes. Because in a lot of these episodes, certain things are answered. And I'm like, did they just cut the scene out? And then we're just supposed to put together that this already happened. But uh, Marvin finishes anger management. Dr. Renee gives him her number. Big whoop. We knew that that was going to happen. And then we see my baby. She's back again in a fur-lined jacket. (laughs) 
doing laundry. Who the hell does laundry in fur? Rock, that's who. But Symphony is outside and he's telling her about the new position and the move. He also gives her the heads up that Burke pulled him over and was asking about her and Kanan. And he tells her, I didn't say anything and that all of her secrets are safe with him. And she's like, I don't have any secrets. But she presses him about you're different or you're you saying nothing is probably different than my nothing. But he just leaves it there and gets up and walks away and just is like, listen, girl, I, I didn't tell this lady nothing. And you don't have anything to worry about with me. And then here we go to Skinamax again with the weird ass scene between Kanan and Palomar being busted by Corinne and they they are laid up in bed and she's saying that I don't know if she wants Kanan to validate how young she looks or that she can attract younger men because she says you're just the right age for me that was gross and then when Corinne busts in and she sees her mother first of all she says you whore (laughs) you whore and (laughs) she sees Kanan in the bed Kanan at least has the has the sense to jump up and be like Corinne it just happened I didn't mean for this to happen and she don't give a hell what Kanan is saying she throws a whole carton of milk at them (laughs) and Palomar doesn't even she's just saying first thing every girl needs to learn is how to hold on to her man yuck bitch like who the hell even says that especially about their own kid like first of all Kanan is a child and so is your daughter but mark my words Corinne is gonna get them back for this but doesn't this remind you of a scene from power where Kanan kind of does the same thing to jukebox where obviously they're older and he sleeps with jukebox's girlfriend in jukebox's own home first of all Kanan has nowhere to live he's fresh out of prison just finished getting beat up by ghosts and getting set on fire he's um what is he doing he is camping out at jukebox's house and she's a cop at this time and then he has he has sex with her girlfriend in her own house that is wild so we know where he got that from but here is where things with a rock throwing is at an all-time high and the ripple effects are about to come through. So after Lou gets stomped out, what does he go do? Does he go to his brother? Nope, he doesn't go to Crazy Marvin. Does he go to his hard-ass sister? Nope, he doesn't go to his sister. He goes to Cartier for Reed for an assist with Linton Manley. Cartier asks, why doesn't he go to Rock for the money, right? But Lou wants to keep Rock away from the same label that she just told the realtor that she owns. <laughs> Cartier bargains for ownership of Bulletproof Records by asking for half of Crown's half. And he asks what happened to Crown. And he says, Crown's track writing days are over. In other words, he's pretty much telling him that Crown is out of here on another level. So he wants to work as a silent partner because... And because Lou needs help from Cartier with Linton, he has to remember that Cartier's help isn't free. And remember, one person's crisis is another person's opportunity. And we all know how messy that's going to get. So keep in mind, this is one rock you cast that's going to pollute the water. Okay, because 
Don't forget, Rock is planning a takeover. And Lou is entering into business with deeper ties to Cartier, the same person that she's caught, that she's pushing out, that she's trying to push out because she wants to move into the DMV area and she has already approached one of his guys, right? So, and now her diggy ass little brother is partnering with the same person that she's trying to set up. Ripple effects, okay? They shake on it. And now Rock, excuse me, now Rock, unbeknownst to her, who, who thinks she owns the record label, is now partnering with Cartier for Reed, and she doesn't even know it in terms of the record label. And now Lou, you can see he's not too, he's not too keen on this agreement, but what other choice does he have? Because he can't go to his sister, he's not going to go to Marvin, and he doesn't really have backup in terms of how he's going to get out of debt with Linton Marley, not Marley, Linton Manley, and paying either paying back the money or having protection against them retaliating against him for not paying the money. And in a later scene, when we see Zisa recording, we see that Lou still has someone telling him what to do in Cartier. So remember... Lou is trying to push the buttons on the boards and Cartier tells him no. And you can see he feels a way about that, right? Because he thought he was getting away from someone telling him what to do or someone doubting his abilities. And Cartier is still there doing the same thing that Crown was doing to him. Pretty much under, undermining his authority, right? And we see that Cartier is still going to be doing the same thing all while taking a profit from the business. And here we go with our new version of frickin' frack. So Dominic and Marco are staking out in front of Tony's house in West Chance in Westchester. She's with her new fiance. Marco repeats again to Dominic that his father cannot know about his outside dealings. Can I just say his leg healed fast, right? Because it was just two episodes ago that they were up in the Catskills and he got shot in his leg for for going for being George Zimmerman and trying to go after Kane and fighting a little boy. And now that we see them, like, why is Marco out with this fuck up? Like, I just, you already know what happened in the Catskills. Of all the people to choose to come with you, this is the person that you wanted to come with you. But I guess because he knew that he was on the outs with his dad and he's trying to prove himself, he figured he's the easiest one to convince to come with him. <sighs> anyway, they enter the house. They get a clean hit on Tony right between the eyes. But the fiance clotheslines Marco and they fall to the bedroom floor. Right. And Dominic has to shoot the right person. And of course, who does he shoot? He shoots and kills Marco. Oh, my God. I saw Marvin's life flash before my eyes as soon as Marco got shot. So he manages getting shot himself and leaving Tony's fiance alive. So I do have a question here. Did they just do a stakeout for 10 minutes or was this weeks in the making? Because. Y'all didn't know that she was in there with somebody else. Y'all didn't see anybody else walking around the house. Y'all didn't see the lights on before y'all was entering the house. The lights are on in that scene, even though they're doing the do. Uh, once again, we're back to Skin and Max. They are, Tony is riding flat-footed. They are doing the do. She takes a sniff of Coke, a line of Coke. 
they it's two of them in the house. So you didn't see them walking around the bedroom. Even if you didn't see them having sex, you didn't see that the lights were on. And you know why people don't close their curtains. The curtains was open in that scene. So you didn't see nothing happening. And y'all just decide to rush in there. No shadows, no nothing. Like, I, I just... So they staked out for 10 minutes and just decided that they was going to carry out a hit. <sighs> boy, oh boy. Heads are going to roll when Sal finds out about this, boy. So then we move on. And this is where we start to wrap up the episode. Rock and Howard meet up. And she tells him that Burke pulled over Symphony and Burke is becoming a problem. Howard refers to Burke as a dog with a bone and not being able to put two and two together. Now, this is a damn lie because Shorty is definitely putting two, to, two and two together, okay? She is investigating all types of shit about, about Howard. And for him to think that Burke isn't getting all of this information, I don't know if he's just saying this to stay cool or like playing, playing it cool for Rock because he was definitely under pressure when he found out that old girl told Burke about his son. When she essentially told Burke that he has a son and she saw what happened, how he reacted to her telling Burke about the son. And he did not seem pleased with that. However, he plays it cool for Rock and says that she can't put two and two together and we don't have to worry about her. But... Rock also tells him that Burke, that Howard and Symphony, excuse me, she tells Howard that Symphony doesn't know what he knows. In other words, that he doesn't really know much about the business. He doesn't, he doesn't have, there's no problem with Symphony. Symphony is not going to be a threat to whatever is going on with them. He's not going to tell Burke anything and she leaves it at that. Now, in this instance, she may have been playing it cool, too, because he also tells her <laughs> that One-Eyed Jack wasn't a snitch. The music that they play here, like, she is shaken. Her eyes open wide because she knew that she fucked up by killing her most loyal soldier, right? She is shaken. Okay? Because... The mother knows that he didn't kill himself because he saw the mother at the station house and he tells Rock all of this. But Howard brushes all of this off and says he made a mistake, but this was just not any mistake, right? This is a pivotal mistake. And I hate when people mess up and they try to justify their mistake by just saying, you make mistakes too. He also tells Rock that he was the one that got famous out. And I could tell Rock is annoyed here, right? Because all of the efforts that she's making to keep Kanan away from Howard, he still ends up going back to Howard because once she, this is what most children do, right? What, what one parent won't do or what one parent says no to, they go to the other parent to, if they're not on a united front, they go to the other parent to see if the other parent will say yes. And in this case, Detective Howard said yes, helped get famous out. And he also found the drug money that was stolen from Canaan uh, in the book bag and was able to retrieve it and able to get it back to Canaan without Canaan telling her anything and one of the conversations that they had while they were up in the Catskills was about keeping secrets from each other and being open and honest with 
each other about their feelings and anything that's going on with them. And that was her reasoning for having the Catskills trip, right? Because she wanted to have an open relationship with her son so that he can ask her any questions and that she can tell him anything and that he can tell her anything. Now, we move back to Burke, who is at Adina's house and Adina pretty much tells her, listen, you got to chill out because right now you're moving like you are internal affairs. She's breaking down all of the information that she is receiving on Howard. She finds out that he has a CI that was 17 years old. But in this scene, she says 16 years old. So either she's saying that she started when she's 16 and she finds out that it was Raquel. She believes that Howard slept with Raquel while she was underage and she then speculates that they have a son or that they maybe they have a son and but she's trying to figure out how does it connect to the shooting now even if they did have relations when she was underage why the hell do you guess that this is related to the shooting just because he was speaking to Kanan like how was she putting this together I what whatever the case is, everyone hates internal affairs and you are moving like internal affairs and you need to stop. You're not investigating the shooting of the cop. You're investigating a cop. And then remember earlier, I told you Corinne is going to get her mother back and this is how she's going to do it. She approaches Rock and we can only guess that she told on her mama about her and her mother sleeping, uh, about her mother sleeping with Kanan. And you know that Rock don't play about her baby. So she she's definitely going to get at Palomar uh, uh, because of what Corinne tells her. After this, we close out the episode. These are the last few scenes now. So Juke gives a copy of the tape that she had fixed to Mr. Bingham. She leaves it on the doorstep. She rings the bell and leaves. But she also sees Detective Howard go to his house to talk to him. She sees that he's pulling up to Mr. Bingham's house. And when Howard pulls up, he shows his badge and he says to Mr. Bingham, I am Detective Howard and I'm here to talk to you about Detective Burke. And I just hope that they don't end up throwing Juke under the bus considering um, Nicole's mom believes Juke is responsible and Burke was the one to get Juke off the hook for it. And remember, they, they felt that Burke overstepped her her authority by pulling Juke out. And remember the captain in an earlier episode when we met Nicole's mom talking to them and a person from the mayor's office. She He says to her, I wish you never got involved in this. And I wonder what Howard is going to talk to Mr. Bingham about in reference to N Nicole, excuse me, in reference to Nicole's death and how Burke was involved. And I'm hoping it doesn't then bring Jukebox into the mix about Nicole dying. And here's where we cue Drake. Cut, where we cut the lights, crept down a block, cut the lights made a right <laughs> and rock is about to kill symphony but she doesn't go through with it and i can only guess that she probably doesn't go through with it because of her emotions and her feelings towards symphony right i hope that she believes that he does have her best interest in mind and that he didn't tell burke anything 
But she doesn't go through with it. And I'm so happy. I was pissed that she even thought to do it. But Symphony lives for another episode. And I wonder if they're going to use his new promotion as a way for her to move her drugs in season three or even within this season. We know that they're setting things up, but they do pick the perfect song uh, to end the episode with, and it's Ghetto Boys, mind tri- playing tricks on me. And in this scene, maybe m- her mind is playing tricks on her because she doesn't go through with it. See you guys later, and I hope you liked this episode. Please leave a, com- leave a comment, subscribe, and download, and leave a review. We are on Spotify and YouTube for now. Apple will be coming up soon, and see you guys next week. Headlight, I can't sleep. I toss and turn. Candlesticks in the dark. Visions of bodies being burned. Four walls just staring at a nigga. I'm paranoid sleeping with my finger on the trigger. My mother's always stressing I ain't living right But I ain't going out without a fight See, every time my eyes close, I start sweating And blood starts coming out my nose It's somebody watching the act But I don't know who it is, so I'm watching my back I can see him when I'm deep in the covers When I awake, I don't see the motherfucker He owns a black hat like I own A black suit and a cane like my own Some might say take a chill, B But fuck that shit there's a nigga trying to kill me I'm popping in the clip when the wind blows Every 20 seconds got me peeping out my window Investigating a joint for traps Taking my telephone for taps I'm staring at the woman on the corner It's fucked up when your mind is playing tricks on you